Hello, and welcome to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. All of our features for the podcast are based on questions submitted by you, our curious listeners. I'm so glad you've joined us. When you're driving city streets, coasting down the highway, or riding public transit, it's natural to want to know how these things came to be. How did we end up with this kind of public transit system in Pittsburgh? Why is the highway routed this way? After the break? I would like to know the story behind the beautiful stone arch bridge that, that crosses over Washington Boulevard. Buckle up and stay with us. Support for the Good Question podcast is made possible by the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, bringing great music to Pittsburgh for 126 years. Calendar of performances and ticket information is available at pittsburghsymphony.org. And by Castus, a Pittsburgh-based consulting firm specializing in business development, e-commerce, and international expansion. No obligation consultations available at castusglobal.com slash WESA. C-A-S-T-U-S global.com slash WESA. Welcome back. Two massive stone arches loom over Washington Boulevard in Pittsburgh's Homewood and Larimer neighborhoods. Good question asker Jeff from Glenshaw noticed the giant spans near a car wash business and storage facility. I would like to know the story behind the beautiful stone arch bridge that, that crosses over Washington Boulevard. The intersecting arches over Silver Lake Drive are seemingly out of place along this curvy concrete road and tower above the speeding traffic below. You can basically fit a seven-story building under there. Bruce Criddlebaugh with the blog Pittsburgh Bridges says the arches were built for the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1902. The railroad came through here because all those busy mainline tracks were converging on downtown Pittsburgh and creating a bottleneck of freight traffic. It's called the Brilliant Viaduct. The name Brilliant comes from an oil refinery nearby that processed oil from the boom that was going on up north in Titusville. It was one of the first refineries in the world and led to the creation of the Standard Oil Company. The Pennsylvania Railroad's chief engineer at the time had a thing for stone, so many of the company's bridges have a similar elaborate, colossal feel as the Brilliant Viaduct. Around the same time, streams flowed freely into Negley Run and down to the Allegheny River. These have since been filled in or covered over by roadways, but back then, a man named George Finley owned the land. He built a dam across one of them and started farming carp. Christine Mondor is a principal at Evolve Environment Architecture, a firm that's been working in Larimer and Homewood and knows a lot about the region's water history. She says Finley even wrote a book about carp farming at Silver Lake. And he talks about how it's an economic driver and how he had to figure out how to make it not flood and um, how it was beautiful but also very functional. Neighbors also enjoyed the lake, and it was a popular ice skating spot in the winter. If you look you can online, you can see postcards from back in the day, and you see people who are dressed in their Sunday best looking over a lake that's underneath these big stone viaducts. Around the turn of the century, the City Department of Public Works director was crafting Pittsburgh's parks into a sprawling connected system. This was around the time Shenley and Highland Parks were developed into what they are today. The city decided to replace a separate bridge along Lincoln Avenue over Silver Lake with an equally extravagant stone span. And that's what people see today. Two intersecting structures towering over trees and cars. But for Pittsburgh residents, the name Silver Lake doesn't bring memories of water, but of movies. I could sit in my bedroom window and look out and see the movie. After the Great Depression, the lake was filled in and transformed into a 550-car movie theater. 
Wanda Matthews graduated from the nearby Westinghouse High School in 1970 and lived up the hill from the Silver Lake Drive-In. Sometimes you could hear it depending on the surrounding noise and sometimes you couldn't. She says families would pack up their vehicles with kids and blankets and snacks and visit the drive-in. The giant arches did seem somewhat out of place against the modern film setting, she says, but most people didn't remember the lake. The drive-in closed in 1968. The area is now overgrown with bushes peeking through the concrete. But the arches are a reminder that at its industrial peak, all parts of the city were bustling with commerce and manufacturing. We'll be back after a quick break with a story about America's first superhighway, right here in Pennsylvania. Get Pittsburgh news and Pittsburgh stories delivered right to your inbox every weekday morning at 7 with Inbox Edition, a newsletter from WESA. It's a quick read that brings you up to speed on the most important topics of the day. It's easy to subscribe at wesa.fm inbox. The 360-mile Pennsylvania Turnpike was once called the world's greatest highway, and we get a lot of questions about it. Good question asker Elaine Harold from Highland Park wondered about the mile markers on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Question on where they measure the mileage to Pittsburgh from. I mean, what is the point? According to Turnpike officials, highway mile markers and GPS systems start the metaphorical yardstick for Pittsburgh in the Central Business District, but they vary. Depending on the GPS system, it's either here, in front of Mellon Green, on the corner of Grant Street and 6th Avenue, or a block away, in front of the City County Building on Grant Street. Some cities, like Paris, have a .0 marker, but Pittsburgh doesn't. Okay, next up, good questions Jana Thompson from the North Side also asked about the Turnpike. I wondered about the probability of the exit to Pittsburgh on the Turnpike actually being on mile 57. The Pennsylvania Turnpike, the concrete connector of the Commonwealth and America's first superhighway. Carl DeFebo with the Turnpike knows a lot about the road's history and says while it is ironic that the number is the same as the famous 57 Heinz Company varieties, it's purely coincidental. Milepost zero is the Ohio border and milepost uh, 359 is the New Jersey border. There was no secret scheme to pair the exit number with the ketchup maker. Most of the turnpike follows the route of the defunct South Pennsylvania Railroad. The line was imagined as a competitor to the powerful Pennsylvania Railroad, but never completed. DeFebo says in the late 1930s, cars were becoming more popular and Pennsylvanians wanted a faster way to get across the state. What created the turnpike was really this concept of building an all-weather highway through the mountains instead of Route 30, which would take you up over the mountains. The trip from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia on Route 30 is almost two hours longer than it is on the Turnpike. Route 30, also known as the Lincoln Highway, stretches across the United States and opened in 1913. Six tunnels bored for the South Pennsylvania Railroad were used in the Turnpike design. It was all-weather because it included standardized grades, so drivers didn't have to maneuver through steep mountains. DeFebo says before the turnpike, limited access toll roads were not common. So it was designed by engineers who wanted to create a consistent experience from end to end. Prior to the Pennsylvania turnpike, streets were financed by the federal government or maintained by private landowners. The PA turnpike was modern. The lanes were all the same width and you could ride it without encountering a stop sign or a red light. It laid the groundwork for today's interstate highway system. Mitch Dockelman co-authored the book, The Pennsylvania Turnpike. It was built to give employment to people for the Depression. During the Great Depression, the federal government under President Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal created the Works Progress Administration. 
The agency provided jobs to struggling families, and the projects included bridges, museums, and hospitals. Dockleman says the original 160-mile turnpike from Carlisle to Irwin took 23 months to build. There's a lot of hype about it. It was being built, and of course, when it opened, um, a lot of folks all over the country came to see it. It was an attraction, not only, you know, to get you from place to place, but it was just so new. The turnpike had been built using right-of-way privileges for the railroad, often through rural areas and farmland. As a result, turnpike historian Neil Short says there weren't a lot of amenities for motorists. The part of Pennsylvania traversed was really like the wilderness, and there weren't really roadside services along there. There was nowhere to get gasoline, food, or anywhere to stop and use a bathroom. Service plazas were built at 30-mile intervals and included large sit-down restaurants and delis. Because there were no federal highway standards at the time, the turnpike's exits were numbered sequentially from 1 to 11. That changed in the early 2000s when the mile-based numbering took effect. Nowadays, the turnpike may feel like any other roadway, but its then-modern design and innovative approach to vehicular travel gives it a special place in American infrastructure history. In the late 1960s, Pittsburghers could take a ride on a cutting-edge transit system, unlike anything in the U.S. Let's remember the transit system that almost was. I remember Skybus. That should be a bumper sticker in this town. Many longtime Pittsburghers, including former Mayor Bill Peduto, can recall the hype about Westinghouse Electric's Skybus project. It seemed futuristic at its time. Pioneering, innovative, modern, this was how people described Skybus, a transit system that was tested in South Park from around 1967 to 1971. On a track a little less than two miles long, the electric-powered rubber-wheeled buses ran on a raised concrete track locked into place by a thick steel guide wheel. Three vehicles were tested year-round, and during the Allegheny County Fair each summer, visitors could pay a dime to take a whirl on the Sky Bus. The boxy blue and white buses could fit about 60 people sitting and standing, and unloaded in 18 seconds. Chris Sandvig, a transit policy expert with Pittsburgh Community Reinvestment Group, said the system generated a lot of interest, including from the Port Authority of Allegheny County. It was a fully autonomous mass transit system, and... The Port Authority came up with a very extensive rapid transit network. Extensive to the tune of 92 miles, extending throughout Allegheny County. It went all the way out to Boyce Park. It went to the new airport. It went down to Library. There was a subway downtown. There was Oakland. And they were in development, and they got pretty far with it. At the time, trolleys and buses dominated public transit in Pittsburgh. Skybus, or the People Mover, as it was sometimes called, would replace a lot of those routes, running on exclusive rights of way. There was no driver, so engineers controlling the car could talk to the passengers through a two-way voice communication system. But listener Dan Lewis, an electrical engineer from Pittsburgh, always wondered why Skybus never graduated from testing. The one thing I never did find out was, you know, why, why did it never take off? How did we end up with what we have now? Sandvik says the project's element of autonomy was an obstacle for Westinghouse. The fact that they uh, did not have operators on it um, was a concern for labor. There was also some instances in the 70s of violence on transit. Um, And so the, the lack of an operator, lack of a human being in the vehicle became a concern. He says Westinghouse tried to address the issues by making videos that explained how the system worked. Complete with great... 1960s Chamber of Commerce glory corporation music set behind it of the the tests that they ran the Skybus through. As part of the demonstration, 
four concrete mixes have been used in the roadway surface to judge their durability. All four mixes were selected for compression strength of 5,000 pounds per square inch. Additionally, the price tag of about $228 million didn't sit well with the elected leaders at the time, and by the mid-1970s, many in western Pennsylvania protested its construction, and it eventually lost its state and federal funding. Instead, the East Busway was built, and the T was extended into the South Hills. Sandvik says, had Skybus been constructed, he thinks it could have been a great opportunity for Pittsburgh. You know, imagine if the first autonomous vehicle in the world was a mass transit, public transit vehicle, not something that uh, a Silicon Valley startup came up with. The test tracks of Skybus were disassembled long ago, but one of the original cars sits outside the Bombardier Transportation Company in the South Hills, which bought Westinghouse Transportation. However, the concept didn't die completely. There are autonomous people mover systems, similar to Skybus, in cities including Miami, Morgantown, and Seattle. And while Skybus didn't take off, it's not the only transportation project the Pittsburgh region has abandoned. The Birmingham Bridge, spanning the Monongahela River from the Hill District and Uptown neighborhoods to the Southside Flats, is significantly larger than many of its bridge cousins. Transit policy expert with Pittsburgh Community Reinvestment Group's Chris Sandvig says that's because it was originally meant to be a highway, highway, highway. The Birmingham Bridge was supposed to be part of the Oakland Crosstown Ferry, which would have connected the city with the Monfayette Expressway. Sandvig says the project would have carried thousands of drivers to and from the city's southern neighborhoods into the heart of the East End and help alleviate traffic issues at the Liberty and Fort Pitt tunnels. It was supposed to go over the Hill District, cut through the hill, connect to Bigelow. Um, there was a whole highway network uh, that was put forward by what's now called PennDOT uh, that never got built. Why didn't it happen? Sandvig says money and politics played a role. But there was also the timing. Beginning in the 1950s, thousands of families were displaced from the Hill District when the city decided to raise much of the neighborhood and build the former Civic Arena. The Hill was a hub of black culture in Pittsburgh, and the development left the area forever changed. Sandvig says that was on the minds of developers when they talked about this new highway project in the 1960s. I mean, could you imagine putting a six-lane highway right through the middle of the Hill District after what you did where the arena was? I mean, that's just not going to fly. Geography also played a role. Our topography keeps us from overbuilding highways and having these six, eight-lane monstrosities going right through the middle of our urban communities. In a city like Pittsburgh, with our hills and valleys and rivers crisscrossing and creating natural boundaries, building is just hard. And sometimes that can save us from ourselves. I like learning about infrastructure projects and dreams, even if they were scrapped. It's a neat way to get into the heads of city planners and past developers and to learn about what the city thought it needed at different points. Do you have a favorite ghost project? A ramp or a bridge that never got built? Let us know. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 905-WESA. And thanks for listening to this episode of our Good Question podcast. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting for their support. You can find episode five out next week. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious.